Welcome to Seeing Red the Pod, episode 44, where we always discuss the latest Nebraska issues. I'm Stephanie, and here with me today, as always, are April and Melody. Hey, ladies. How's it going? Hey! Hi! I've been suntanning in my bikini all day. Mm-hmm. Me too. <laughs> I mean, there is a, was it, 60-plus increase in temperature since earlier this week to now, give or take. That's funny. All I did today was shovel. <laughs> How are your forearms looking after all that shoveling? My arms, they are a little sore, yeah. <laughs> like, are your buns, like, do you just have, like, this, like, butt of steel now that you've just been, like, all that bending over, like, Ugh. You're, like, 40 inches over normal this this year for stuff. Yeah. Is any of this going to help us get out of a drought at least? I, I think it, I think that there's going to be positive impacts on the level of water in our ground. I didn't even think about that, April. That's such a silver lining. I know. We've been in actual drought. All right. Okay. No, I forgive you. I got to tell you guys, I was in Omaha and they got like eight, eight inches of snow here. It was nuts. And I also mm-hmm. have to say that after driving around town a little bit this afternoon, Omaha appears to be far superior in the street plowing than Lincoln. Just I am from Omaha. I can confirm. I cannot. Hmm. I do have to say though, when I first moved to Lincoln, my street never got plowed like ever. It was shocking. It wasn't until Lyrian got elected that now at least my street is plowed every storm. Not well, but it is plowed. And so now I've just been so beaten down that I'm like, oh, this is great. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. The snow plows like traveled around in pods like they were killer whales or something. It was crazy. (laughs) Yeah, like they don't mess around. What are these things? Anyway, April, what'd you do this fun weekend? Uh, I made the trek to Costco. We needed, uh, my family needed some new uh, eye exams and glasses. Woo! <laughs> Living your and delivered a lot of Girl Scout cookies. I appreciate that. I ate a whole nice. Mm-hmm. And Melody, other than sun tanning, what did you do? It's pretty much it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> That's pretty much it. I did. Oh, I did buy a new office chair. It seems like a low kind of thing, but like I work Mm -hmm. at home. It's a big deal. Mm -hmm. It's huge. My one office chair, I got it from an old office. They got new chairs. And so I've had it for a long time. Mm -hmm. It was threadbare. It was uncomfortable, but I couldn't get rid of it because it it was still working. Mm -hmm. I was every day. I would hope it would break. And finally a wheel popped off. And I mean, it's the only chair, so I still had to sit on it. Well, then like three more wheels went like pop, pop, pop. <laughs> it was a little unsettling to have all your I wheels think- pop off from your COVID butt. <laughs> but I, I still can have a new chair. <laughs> I do have a new chair. So that is, that is fancy. More silver lining. Man. Yeah. Okay. Also, our power grid didn't go down this week. That was incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Should bring on our guests. Power outages at your houses? I'm really, no power outages. No. I mean, I had a furnace outage and then a minor flood on the back porch, but we had power the whole time, thankfully. Mm. What a silver lining. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So let's bring on our guests. Oh, I can't wait. Okay. Call them in. Our guest today is Eric Williams. Eric's career has been dedicated to protection and conservation of natural resources. He has been a member and helped lead a number of community-based environmental organizations over the past decade and was elected to the board of directors at Omaha Public Power District in 2018. Eric, welcome. We're so excited to have you. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks very much for inviting me. So for a little context, Eric is here and it is just a few days after the epic storms that we faced with negative 20, negative 25 degrees, where we saw our public power system at work and it did not go down. Mm-hmm. And we were, you know, Stephanie and April and I were talking and we're thinking like, what, what even is public power? Like, what does that even mean? Who the heck knows? It's all engineering and complicated and, I don't know. Let's bring on an expert. 
So we brought on an expert. So we're so happy you're here, Eric. Yeah, uh, this is great. Um, I'm glad to be here. I'm a strong supporter of public power. I think that it delivers great results for people in Nebraska. Um, and the unique structure, Nebraska is the only all public power state. So we have more direct connection between the people we represent and the actions of the utility than basically anywhere else. Uh, people can contact their elected uh, board member and uh, express their feelings and opinions. I represent subdivision six in Northeast Omaha. And I think that that system just really highlights uh, how I think, I think the implementation in Nebraska really highlights how public power can help move policy forward and deliver uh, improvements in quality of life for people in our communities. Excellent. So before we talk about public power stuff, which is we what we the meat of what we want to talk to you about, can you explain to us how did you get on this road? Like, are you from Omaha? Did you grow up here? How did you get interested in um, power? Like, what? What's the path that got you here? Yeah, uh, I am from Omaha originally. Uh, I went to Westside High School and then Rice University in Houston, Texas. And so kind of on both ends of the spectrum in the last week, things have been really interesting because I have um, friends down in Houston and across Texas who had it much worse than we did here. Um, so I keep connected with them since college. Um, I moved back here after college, uh, spent some time with my family. My grandparents were here. Um, I have three brothers. They're all in the area as well. Uh, and so... It, you know, it's been, um, I've, I've really enjoyed living in Omaha. It's been a, there's been a lot of opportunities uh, for me to get involved with organizations. I helped start a community garden in my neighborhood and Ultimate Frisbee League. Uh, and then um, I found myself more and more engaged in sustainability related work and specifically clean energy. And so I don't remember a time before I was interested in resource conservation and protection. It's, it's kind of always been there for me. And I think that's probably because the scientific evidence has been clear my entire life. Uh, I mean, James Hansen presented to Congress in 1988, and I was seven. And so I don't remember a time before we were clear about the evidence that climate change is occurring. It is caused by human emissions of carbon dioxide. The consequences will be severe and disproportionately felt by those who have the least um, to do with the causes, and that we should take uh, you know, immediate and direct action. And so that has been the background of my life. And, uh, and so there isn't a particular moment when I said, oh, geez, I got to get involved here. It's just kind of always been there. Uh, and um, you know, I've implemented that in different ways, including the environmental club in high school, starting a biofuels organization about 12 years ago. And then the most recent and kind of most significant step for me so far has been to decide to run for the board of directors at OPPD in 2018. And then by being elected, you know, working on the policies that help guide the utility forward. And I think it's important to, to, to highlight that I am one of the directors. There are eight elected directors on the board at OPPD. And anything I'm expressing here is just my own opinion. It does not necessarily represent the entire board or an official position of the organization. Um, sometimes we have different ideas and opinions. Uh, we stick to the same factual information. And so and I just want to make it clear that uh, any opinions here are just my own. You started an environmental club in your high school? Uh, you know, I don't remember if I started the club, but I was definitely in the club. And club is a pretty strong term because uh, it was mostly just like a couple of us sitting around and we were a club. So um, we had some money from the school and that allowed us to buy pizza on Fridays, you know, a couple of times throughout the year. And then um, on Friday afternoon, mostly it meant we would go around and pick up the recycling bins and, uh, and take them down to the recycling container down on the, the dock at, uh, in the school. And pretty often that was just me, but uh, that's okay. It was still fun and it was a good way to make sure that it got done because at the time in the late 90s, recycling was not extremely common. And if you weren't kind of in person there making sure it happened, then it's pretty likely that it would just be collected with the trash and thrown out. So yeah, I did that in high school and it was interesting. Uh, you know, like, again, a good way to have direct involvement and kind of uh, help guide me into the future of more personal action in the area of environmentalism, but also uh, kind of policy and collective action. So again, the club was pretty small, but, uh, but it was kind of a first taste and I really liked it and I've been going since then. I just love that. I think that's really cool. And I remember like being in the 80s in elementary school and you'd get a little science magazine and they're like, there's a hole in the ozone from hairspray. Like yes. they have some, I mean, I just didn't piece that together, but they've been telling this, that the earth is in crisis our whole life. And you're right. I hadn't pieced that together the whole life bit, but I mean, I was eight in 1988, you know, like, yeah, like, it's their whole life. 
My fifth grade teacher helped put this big Earth Day celebration together when I am like, I must have been 11. Um, I don't want to brag, but in seventh grade, I made the winning t-shirt for our Earth Day event. So (laughs) (laughs) What, what was the design? What did you what was on there? uh it was the earth it looked like a puzzle and it was like it said like piece by piece be a part of the solution so <laughs> yeah yeah that sounds that sounds familiar i did one uh, i did one like that about for the heart association i drew a little graphic that was very similar type of uh Type of, well, I'm you know, older than you, so you stole it from me. <laughs> probably, or or I stole it from another poster because I was a kid, and they were just like, "Good job, kid, you did it." Earth Day is from Nebraska, right? Am I getting is that a correct fact? Uh, Earth Day was a, a national movement in 1970. Um, Arbor Day from Nebraska. There we go. There we so go. So we've got we're just the trees. Yeah, we've got strong environmental roots here, and I think that uh, people across the state do recognize the connection to the air and water and soil and climate. And so, you know, I, I think that that's what leads to a lot of the engagement that we see here. Um, the uh, the connection by various groups to the um, No Keystone XL pipeline movement uh, for a whole bunch of different reasons. I think that that's a, a strong demonstration that people in Nebraska are connected to our natural resources and recognize the value, and it's kind of ingrained into uh, into into our state's history. And I keep saying this because I, it's, I'm so amazed, but Nebraska is the only state that was able to stop all of the paperwork movement and, um, and they didn't get all the signatures they needed to get the pipeline through for the Keystone Pipeline. Nebraska is the only state that pulled it off on the whole route. So yeah, I mean, you're right. We are an environmentally conscious state no matter who, no matter what the governor of our state may or may not say, right? Like we know the people of Nebraska really deeply, deeply care about the environment, about water, about clean air, about soil. Like we deeply care as a state, for sure. Our actions show that. So talk to us about public power. Like you said, we're the only public power state. What does that mean? What do other states do? And why why are we different? Right. So Nebraska is the only all public power state. A lot of states have some form of public power. Uh, They have a public power option in most places. But in Nebraska, there is just one electric utility provider in every location. And there is some form of public leadership to uh, to make the decisions and guide the policies at those utilities. In general, there are three large electric utilities in Nebraska. Omaha Public Power District covers kind of the eastern portion of the state, uh, about 5,000 square miles. Uh, And then NPPD, or Nebraska Public Power District, covers most of the rest of the state. And then Lincoln Electric System is the third kind of large public power organization in Nebraska, and they cover the city of Lincoln. Uh, And then Nebraska Public Power District has wholesale customers that are rural electric agencies or uh, municipal utilities who do some of the um, distribution to the actual customers and do the billing and the engagements. So there are a lot of other smaller organizations who are also public power, rural electric co-ops, that kind of thing. Um, But in general, the, the big three organizations who do most of the generation of the energy in Nebraska are OPPD, NPPD, and LES. And if you don't have public power and public meaning there's some sort of board, the people get a vote who's in and out of the board. And then that board makes the executive decisions about we're going to do this or we're going to do that. Right. Right. Like a real simple. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's something that the board members at OPPD and the senior management team have spent quite a bit of effort on over the last several years in particular on outlining the responsibilities where the board is generally responsible for the mission and vision and values of the organization. So we set the what, the outcomes that we'd like to see. And then the senior management and the employees and staff at OPPD are responsible for programs and projects and delivering how those objectives are going to be accomplished. And so there's kind of a division there. And that's something we've spent a good amount of time outlining and defining because it is so helpful that we can each stay focused on our individual responsibilities. So over the last week, um, during the extreme weather events uh, and the polar vortex uh, you know, emergency uh, across most of the, mid, the middle part of the country, 
people would you know ask board members questions but board members weren't really doing anything extremely specific other than answering questions, talking with staff, making sure we were up to date on what was going on. It's really the employees who were doing the actual day-to-day -day operational stuff and, and the great work that helped to avoid the serious consequences that could have happened. And so that division of setting policy by the board and carrying out actions by the staff works really well. And, and I'm uh, glad to be a part of a team that has such a clear idea of what our roles are and how we can work together to deliver great results for people in our communities across the state. Does the board hire and manage any staff at power companies? Like it, like on a nonprofit board, you manage the ED and then the, ED, the executive director, and then they manage all the rest of their staff on down but the board just has the one. Does, is that how our public power companies work at some level or is it different? That is how it works at OPPD. And I think the same is true at NPPD. LES might be a little different because they are an advisory board. Uh, I'm not totally clear on, on their exact structure there, but, but OPPD has that hourglass structure, um, eight board members, one president and CEO, and then he is responsible. They are responsible to um, determine who else is on the senior leadership team with them. And then, um, from there, the, uh, the hierarchy of the organization um, goes down to all of the other employees. So yes, the board does have the responsibility to hire and review the performance of the chief executive, the president of the organization. Nice. Okay. Talk to me about George Norris. How does he fit into public power? Yeah, George Norris is an interesting character in our history in Nebraska, and he keeps coming up in my life personally because he has been intimately involved in the natural resources district's structure, uh, as well as the public power structure and the legislature. So those three systems are unique to Nebraska, and he was involved in all three of them. Uh, he was a champion of the idea that there should be public utilities for elect electricity generation, transmission, distribution in Nebraska, uh, very specifically saying that the development and conservation of these resources ought always to be under public control, public ownership, and public operation. And uh, that's something, uh, it's a specific quote from him that I looked up a couple of years ago, but I think it really highlights how he had the vision of the purpose of the public power districts to work in the best interest of the people in Nebraska, the people that we represent, the people that we serve. And there is no external party, like in a private or a for-profit utility, that is extracting value, extracting money out of the community, out of the economy uh, for shareholders, which might be somewhere far away. And so there is no external force that is taking a piece of the benefits of the public power system in Nebraska. It is only for the benefit of the people, the customer owners that we represent. So I think that's interesting to talk about the profitability of energy, which of course is incredibly profitable. Everybody needs it to do everything. We need it to run this podcast right now. You need it for everything to keep your foods cold, you know, everything. And in places that don't have public power systems, they're building in a profit margin and their bottom line is profitability. That's their bottom line. And our bottom line, when it's public, and I think this is probably how it works, but correct me if I'm wrong, is you're thinking about, oh, like my neighborhood has to have a good electric system. So we're not going to cut corners on engineering and we're not going to skip regulations and we're going to make sure it works when it's cold and works when it's really hot. Um, we're just going to always make sure it works because you care more about it working than the profitability of the machinery. Yeah, and, and I think that's clear in the mission of OPPD that we provide affordable, reliable, and environmentally sensitive energy services. And there is no statement in there about profitability. Um, there is no external, you know, external driving motivation to help keep costs low. We want to keep costs low to help deliver on affordability for our customers but there is no other incentive to reduce costs specifically because that provides additional benefits. Um, there is no uh, additional compensation based on how low the rates are for the management. Uh, the board members uh, are, do have a, a stipend um, for, for our time and, and involvement, but um, we all uh, have had different jobs, uh, different professional careers. And so we don't make any more money if the rates are lower or if we, um, or if we cut corners and, uh, and save on maintenance costs. So there is no 
incentive to do that because that would impact the other part of the mission, the, the affordability. If we make it really cheap, um, that would impact the other part of the mission, the uh, reliability, or it might impact that third part, the environmental sensitivity that we can deliver on. And so it's kind of like a three-legged stool and you have to balance those three different interests, um, but, uh, but there is no other force to you know, extract that value and, uh, at the, which is very frequently at the direct cost to the people who are the customers of the utility. And I think that's one of the things we've seen in Texas over the last week, that profitability really was the primary driver of the decisions they were making. And it, it ended up, they ended up getting bit because it decreased the reliability of their system. They cheaped out on weatherizing some of the equipments and, uh, and now the cost is to the people who don't have power. That's exactly what I was gonna ask you. Isn't that what just played out in Texas? But you know, you said it before I could even ask. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I think that there have been other examples as well. Uh, there are a lot of very serious questions about how the uh, electric utilities are structured in California. In Toward the end of last year, there um, well, over the last few years, there have been wildfires that have been attributed to the high voltage transmission lines from different electric utilities. But specifically at the end of last year in about August, there was um, kind of a, a major set of uh, blackouts that were related to some investments that uh, probably should have been made but weren't. And that triggered a lot of very serious questions about the private for-profit external ownership of the utility uh, that did not have the same interests as the people they were serving. And so there's a, you know, I think there's a serious investigation going on to help decide what is the best way to meet the needs of the people. Because as you said, it is, electricity is critical to the lives of people. Um, we need it for all kinds of modern services. And, uh, and we can't have someone making decisions that will negatively impact people's lives because it makes them private profit. Uh, Again, that's my view, and that's why I like public power so much. And I think others are, are starting to investigate that as well, because uh, this has happened several times. Um, Enron's energy trading was very closely connected to private profit extracted from the energy markets, from the electric system. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we're seeing it again in Texas that uh, it was cheaper to not weatherize your equipment. And, and that allowed them to have higher profits. And it came at the, the expense of very serious consequences and, uh, and blackouts that have gone for days for millions of people. Oh gosh, I just read a story about a little boy who died in his bed next to his little brother from hypothermia. Totally preventable. All you needed was to weatherize that equipment. And they've been told for 30 years, 20 years to do it. I mean, for decades, Texas has been told, you have a problem, Texas figure it out. And they're like, mm, see, the thing is we hate regulation and we hate taxes. My favorite is how people on the internet, of course, are saying, well, turbines can't, wind turbines can't run in the winter. <laughs> it's too cold. Right. No, no, they got them in Alaska, got them in Iowa. They were on just fine. <laughs> right. And, and the, the wind turbine point is a very specific talking point from a very specific interest group who wants to take uh, and you know, take advantage of a situation to spin a predetermined narrative that renewable energy is not reliable and can't meet the needs of people, and just full full stop, no discussion about it. That is not what happened last and, week. And these are Re the people that are likely responsible for what's happening in Texas right now, anyway. Yeah, it, it's disappointing that that uh, that type of story has got so much traction because uh, while wind energy was impacted by the very severe weather, so was solar. Uh, but more specifically, the impacts to coal and natural gas and even nuclear facility uh, were dramatically more significant than the impacts to the renewable energy. And renewables are known to be very uh, variable generation assets, and they're predictable based on the weather patterns that you can forecast one, two, five, ten days into the future. But the other fossil fuel assets, those are the ones that are a real challenge because they are relied upon to be there when needed. And if they are not weatherized and they can't actually live up to that extremely high reliability that they are sold uh, sold based on, uh, that's when you really have a problem. Hmm. I was doing some research on the mortgage industry. And back in 2007, 2008, we had a housing crisis and a lot of people lost their homes. And a lot of people lost their jobs, including some really, really sleazy um, brokers and loan brokers in New Jersey, which is kind of a state known for really sleazy brokerages. And they moved, you could see it, they moved from 
the mortgage world, then that started getting regulated and they moved over to the public power world or the power world, the private power world, which I think had recently been deregulated at some level. And you end up seeing all of the elderly people just ripped off because all these people came to their door selling power and people just, it's a utility. You have to have it. And so the idea that there are competing utilities it rips off old people. Um, are there, what about, you know, one thing that everybody's of course thinking about is white supremacy and how that flows through every single system that we have in our lives. And I'm assuming there's some, you know, public power is a system and are, are there, systems of white supremacy that you can see that you know about that public power is addressing um is there some kind of history there like what do you know about that so we have strategic directives that guide the operations at the utility and one is focused on employee relations and it does have um, some excellent language that has been updated several times over the recent years about uh, diversity and inclusivity and equity within the employees uh, within within the organization Uh, i do feel like there's some work to be done on Improving our policy to clarify that that same equitability consideration needs to be part of how we interact with our customer owners as well. There isn't a specific policy right now that says um, that we have, um, you know, equity as part of our mission or uh, as part of the specific review that the board does on annual reports for affordability or reliability or environmental sensitivity. But the committees of the board are working on the strategic directives. And this is a lot of jargon real fast, but strategic directives are those policies that help guide the operations at the utility. And strategic directive number two is related to rates and that covers affordability. And uh, the finance committee is spending some time this year looking at how how do we define affordability? Because it has traditionally been very largely tied to just a low cost, per kilowatt hour or a low bill for our customers. But how is that affordability felt by different people in different areas and um, with different lived experiences across OPPD's service territory? Um, We don't currently have a report that tells us that, but that's something that we wanna look into. And so what is the definition of affordability and how do we assess whether or not our policies are having different impacts for different people? And then what can we and what should we do to improve that? The same is true with reliability. Um, The systems committee, I'm the chair of the systems committee for the coming year, and the systems committee uh, is gonna be getting a report about reliability under that strategic directive. And I think that the same type of consideration of, we say reliability and it's measured across the entire district. So how specifically should we evaluate reliability based on different parts of town, um, different impacts to um, people by any kind of uh, different metrics. Uh, what kind of data can we break down? Can we get information at the zip code or census tract level and compare that to other data sets and find out if we are having different impacts to different people? And then if so, what should we do to adjust our policies and our programs and uh, and, and how should we move forward? So. Um, that work is moving moving forward this year. I don't know what that will lead to long term, um, but it is it is something that needs to be addressed. We have not had specific policies in the past, but that I personally feel we need to improve our policies to make sure we incorporate equity into the center of what we're doing in uh, in all of our uh, all of our policies and and how OPPD interacts with our customer owners. Yeah, and I kind of wonder specifically about, you know, of course, the redlined part of Omaha between 480 and 75, which in every piece of infrastructure in Omaha is deficient, right? Like, um, we, uh, we, I don't even know, like, if the lead pipe problem in the water has been fixed there, you know, like, and the lead paint problems and you know, we just, we just know that is a problem area because of white supremacy, right? Uh, Not because of the people that are living there, to be very clear. And I also remember back in 1997, the big snowstorm of October, where all the leaves were still on the trees and all the trees broke and all the power went out. And I had a friend who lived uh, kind of like 35th and Leavenworth-ish area. And her family didn't have power for over a week. 
and my family lived in Papillion and we never lost power. And I just remember thinking how weird it was that parts of the city were out of power for so long. And part, I mean, part of it was just trees, but I'm wondering if we have forecasted for extreme weather events from climate change to say that could happen again. Are we burying power lines in our oldest parts of the city with the biggest trees and things like that? Yeah, I've, I've asked several times about uh, burying existing power lines. That is extremely complicated and extremely expensive. Uh, that is essentially unbuilding the infrastructure that we currently have and rebuilding new infrastructure in its place. So new developments definitely does focus on buried power lines, particularly from the pole to the home, because that's a point where it's easy to avoid um, some of those service interruptions because of trees in your yard. But, uh, but some of the older infrastructure is in, as you said, older parts of town, and it is in places that have uh, historically had uh, all kinds of disparate impacts relative to the newer parts of town. And I represent subdivision six in Northeast Omaha, and that is an older part of town. Um, and it is, uh, it is uh, more black residents than the other, uh, other districts at OPPD. And so uh, it is critically important to me that we are analyzing whether or not our, pol our policies are showing different outcomes for different people. Um, and I don't know the answer right now. I think there aren't clear examples that there are definitely different outcomes in different areas uh, uh, associated with uh, race or income. But I think, it's, I think it's something that we do need to continue to investigate to, to find out whether or not we need more improvement in that area. And if so, then decide what we should do next. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that's on the radar, you know, looking into that. I mean, I. I used to work at Girl Scouts and I had some of that area of where your district is. And one of the schools that I had was Sherman Elementary, which is way at the top. Like if you keep going, going and going past the airport, you end up in the Sherman School District and they don't have paved roads. Like they don't have paved roads. The first time I went to this elementary school, I was blown away that there were no grocery stores. There were no parks. There was nothing. There was one paved road for the school bus to get in and out and everything else was dirt roads. I couldn't believe the city of Omaha had completely and totally ignored this little school. And I had never even heard about it. Grew up in Omaha my whole life. So. Yeah, I think, I think that there are lots of areas where um, public agencies need to spend some time looking at policy and evaluating, are we asking the right questions about whether or not we have disparate impacts? And if we find that there are different, uh, different outcomes for different people, what should we do about it? And I think that that fundamental question is not asked often enough. And it's something that I would like to focus on. Uh, I'm not sure if the appropriate term is environmental justice or climate, uh, climate democracy or um, you know, anything like that. What is the appropriate way for OPPD to have a policy in that area? Um, but it's something I hope that we will get a chance to look into and, uh, and update as necessary, and then make sure that we continue to take in more and better information about the way that we're operating in the community so that we can uh, identify and take, make corrections if necessary. There is a podcast that April and I are listening to about the environment. And April, do you remember what it's called off the top of your head? How to Save a Planet. How to Save a Planet. That's right. I think we've talked about it a couple of times and I always forget mm -hmm. the name. But they spend a lot of time talking about how environmental policy decisions, it is such a equity issue because the people that are going to be the most impacted by climate change and extreme weather events, um, food insecurity, all the things related to climate are black indigenous people of color and how in these advocacy movements, you often don't see them and there's not enough intentionally things being done to raise up the work that's going on in those communities because there is work going on in those communities. And in, so I guess I wanna ask you as someone who is in the mix of it all, are there any leaders that you wanna recognize like people that are doing environmental work in the district that you serve and kind of give them some, you know, airtime? 
So we are in election season in Omaha right now. And so for the mayor and all of the city council seats, we elect them all at the same time. And in all of those elections, there are excellent candidates and almost all of them have a climate action plan as a bullet point in their campaign platform, which I think is tremendous. Because all candidates or all of the excellent candidates? If, <laughs> good question. I'm just saying, I have a feeling some of the non-excellent ones don't have an energy plan. If you are an excellent candidate for one of those positions, you have a climate action plan bullet point in your platform. Okay. And so <laughs> I, I think that those are, that's the type of leadership that we need right now, because we have just come out of four years of a federal administration that was built on intentional misinformation and outright lies about environmental policy and specifically climate change. And we have seen change at the top and that will have impacts across our country and internationally as we rejoin the Paris Climate Accord. Um, there will be some benefits there, but at the state and here in Omaha at the city level, I think we need to be more open and more honest and more clear about the fact that climate change is real and we need to have a plan. There are two halves of that. You need to uh, mitigate the causes of climate change, the carbon emissions and other activities that, uh, that humans um, carry out that, that are causing the negative impacts. And you need to be prepared for adapting to the consequences that are already happening that we know will get worse in the future. And that's the kind of um, that's the kind of discussion that I'm hearing from candidates um, in uh, in races in um, all of those uh, uh, all of those seats in Omaha right now. And so, for example, I talked yesterday with uh, Kat Gottsteiner, and uh, she specifically wanted to have a discussion about how environmental policy in the city of Omaha can be updated. And on that call, uh, Cami Watkins, running for another city council seat, joined and talked specifically about how we can include some of the equity considerations in the climate action plan and how critical that is to be centered in those policies. Um, Jasmine Harris is running for mayor. I've talked to her a couple times about including um, climate into, uh, into her platform as well. And then uh, Sarah Johnson just uh, announced that she would be running for uh, city council as well. And we talked for uh, maybe a couple hours about how to put together some bullet points on what a climate action plan might look like. And so those are all uh, progressive women who want to see policy improved in Omaha, and I think they're all doing great work to make sure that it's part of the discussion and that there is an expectation that Omaha begins to advance our policy on the city level so that OPPD can work with the city um, to, to move policy forward, just like you have in Lincoln, where the city has a climate action plan and the utility has a zero carbon goal. Those two need to be matched together. Uh, you can't do it on your own. OPPD can't decarbonize all of the communities in our service territory because there's other things that we don't control. So we need partners and to see so many great candidates and so many elections who are doing that work is just, uh, is, is really rewarding and really inspiring to me. So like you mentioned four incredible people that you love and three out of four are not white women. And I, I just like, it speaks to what they were saying on the How to Save a Planet podcast, which is national, right? But right here, when we look at a microcosm and we just look at Nebraska and then we drill it down to the municipality level, we can see, we can see it's not an all white movement. And I think that's important to recognize and to really seek out those people to be partners with whatever we're doing, because we, it's going to take all of us because this stuff is complicated and it's big. What can you tell me about research coming out of our land-grant universities? Do we have a lot of um, a, a lot of academic papers spitting out of our land-grant universities on the environment in Nebraska? Do you know about that? Well, specifically related to uh, energy and climate, I would say there is room for improvement. I think that the academics uh, are aware of the factual information and want to do more to highlight the need for action in Nebraska. There was a great study from UNL called Climate Im Implications for Nebraska that came out in, I want to say 2015. Uh, and it highlighted very specifically the causes and the consequences and listed some areas where steps should be taken. And as far as I know, at the state level, no specific action has uh, has come from that. Uh, there's been back and forth in the legislature about whether or not there should be funding for a state climate action plan. Um, I think it didn't make it last year. There's a bill this year uh, that's calling for that kind of, uh, that kind of work to be done um, in partnership with UNL, I believe. And so I think that academics who work in the area 
know what needs to be done. They know the research that can help us to set policy for the future, but that there are other forces that are outside of the universities that are keeping that from happening. And that's unfortunate. Uh, I think it, it falls under a predetermined narrative of what is best for our state and our communities. And it's disappointing to me to hear people who are in positions where they could help to make investments to strengthen our public power utilities in Nebraska and to um, be more prepared for events like we just had this last week, but instead choose to just criticize and say that it's unacceptable and that um, we need to do something different. We need to reinvest in more expensive and outdated technology that is um, you know, specifically that we need to build new coal facilities. I just can't understand how that type of a talking point comes out of anyone's mouth. That's just disappointing to me. And we need better policy discussion across the state. And it needs to be led by academics who know how to do unbiased scientific research to tell us what steps we should take. You know, that is tangentially related to something that's happening at the university right now. We know that the University of Nebraska-Lincoln is on the censure list. They censured a, um, they got censured because they did not respect the academic freedom of a graduate student who was protesting a um, Turning Point USA, who we've now come to see in after the Capitol attacks, they busload, they sent busloads of people there after their unmasked rallies with thousands of high school and college students, right? This is a very dangerous organization, and this graduate student was right about saying that they, it would be harmful to have this organization um, as an active member on our university campuses. So I need to, I kind of want to link that back to this conversation about academics and say, one, academics, you need to be making sure that your protections that the regions are currently working on actually pass. Academic freedom is really important. And for this issue, we need your voices. We need them loud. We need them strong. And you need to be putting thumbtacks on the chairs of policymakers to get this stuff moving. You are the, you are the shining star. You are the academics. You're the only people who understand this stuff. And to think about how serious academic freedom is, Back the very first president of the University of Omaha, it was called the Municipal University of Omaha. Um, the very first president of it was named William Seelock. And he did a lot in that university and he was a huge public power proponent. He was um, also a huge defender of academic freedom. And what happened was that the Board of Regents sent spies to find out if anybody was preaching about public power in their classrooms. And the president of the municipal, the municipal University of Omaha went to the Board of Regents and said, no, you don't get to do that. We have academic freedom. We are the experts. We peer review ourselves to find out who the charlatans are. That's how this works. This isn't your lane, you need to back up. And they fired him. And then right after that, he um, died by suicide. And, and so your silence as academics is unacceptable. You have to fight for your academic freedom and you have to fight for our climate and fight for racial justice and fight for whatever your discipline gives you an expertise to fight for. So if you are in an academic discipline, I'm talking to you because uh, these things are life and death. And you have the power to one, make sure you have the protections at every college and university in this state. And two, you have to be the experts out there and you have to help people pressure their policymakers with your giant brains full of knowledge. We're counting on you. And, and what's this academic freedom rant. <laughs> And, and what's disappointing to me is that we are the only country in the world that still allows our academic discussion to be centered around whether or not climate change is real. The term believe in climate change, quite frankly, is nonsense. That is not the appropriate way to talk about scientific information. You don't get to not believe in climate change, just like you don't get to not believe in gravity. It's still going to pull you down to the ground. And I just said that on another show the other day, so you'll hear me say it again in the future, because it is... It is unacceptable to have our discussion centered around an inappropriate part of the conversation on whether or not this is true. It is true. 
Science is true, whether you believe it or not. And so we need to move on from that form of a discussion. We need to move to the type of work that we've talked about. A climate action plan for the state of Nebraska is needed. We need to come up with a way to put that together because the preliminary background work on whether or not climate change is happening and what the, con what the consequences will be in our state, that work is concluded. That is conclusive. We know the answers. We have to take the next step and we do need academics who are empowered to help us to, to write policy that will move that, uh, to, to move forward and continue to protect and improve the lives of people across the state. And to, you know, use a conservative buzzword. Honestly, climate policy is about security. Um, it's a security issue. Like we have a huge aquifer that much of the country relies on. We have, we feed a large portion of the country. Um, we have a lot of land that, at least in theory, won't um, go underwater when the oceans rise. <laughs> there are a lot of reasons we need to have a plan for how to make Nebraska succeed when these climate extremes happen. Um, if we can't, I mean, we have a very short window of time to try to reverse a lot of damage. And, and the weird part is that, um, that it's not just for the people who are here now, because as yeah. climate consequences increase in other locations, people will yeah. eventually have to move. And the types exactly. of geography and natural resources that you mentioned that we have in abundance in Nebraska will make this a very attractive place for people to pick as a destination when coastal cities are really under threat, um, when people are migrating around the world because their homes are no longer livable. Um, what's going on in Nebraska, the, the types of things that we do in Nebraska now need to be designed to prepare us for that future where more people need to come to places that have resources that have not been negatively impacted or completely destroyed by climate change. And so I think that that's a key part, a key part of the planning work that we need to be doing right now. And we do need academics to help us, uh, help us carry out that work as well. And, you know, there might be people who say, oh, I don't, that's not going to happen. We don't need to worry about that yet. Well, we have a space force. <laughs> I think we can at least come up with a stinking climate plan and worst case scenario, we don't have to use it. <laughs> Good point, April. Um, one thing I'm gonna mention in all this when we're talking about uh, public power and what that really means to the people of our state, how did they ever get this passed? Like, how did George Norris make this happen? I mean, I know I don't, it's a rhetorical question. I'm gonna have to do some research, but it just seems like such a progressive policy that it, it's hard for my, I live in Nebraska brain to wrap my head around it. Well, my understanding is that the, the primary beneficiaries of the public power system were rural farmers in Nebraska who would have been too far away for private utilities to have run electric um, transmission and distribution lines to provide them service. And so by uh, moving to a public power system and saying that electric utilities need to provide service to everyone, and that is still the requirement for public power in Nebraska now, we must serve all customers. We don't get to choose whether or not we serve someone regardless of where they are. Um, I, I think that that is why public power was an attractive position to Nebraskans decades ago, because otherwise there was no good structure to, to get um, electric lines out to people who live very, very far away in low density locations, uh, far away from places where electric generation was going to be occurring. And so it is, um, you know, while it might be progressive, um, it is still connected with the rural history of our state. And, and that's why public power was seen as a benefit because it provides benefits to people who otherwise wouldn't have been served. I wish we could do that with broadband and healthcare. So OPPD, <laughs> so OPPD um, does follow bills in the legislature related to um, broadband, most specifically because we have infrastructure distributed across, well, OPPD does across our territory, but public power does across the state of Nebraska, um, polls for transmission and distribution lines that could be um, potentially used to support other types of public infrastructure or 
even private infrastructure that serves uh, serves people across our state. And so um, those discussions are something that um, that you know OPPD is aware of about how should we provide broadband across the entire state. Um, and I think there's a lot of uh, potential benefit and overlap there in the future. And I'm interested to see where those policies go as we realize that just like electricity was in the last century, uh, access to information and broadband specifically is critical to the success of people's lives in this century. Um, very kind of related. Um, true story. My grandmother told me that um, they lived in rural Iowa and they wanted phones badly, right? Kind of like the way people want broadband out there now. And um, the electric company, or, I'm partly apologize, the uh, phone company made a deal and said, well, we'll provide the power and the lines. If, if you guys put up the poles, we'll put phones out to your house. <laughs> so my grandfather and all of his neighbors and stuff, they worked together and put all the poles up so that they could have telephones. <laughs> It's just yeah. funny how it's so parallel to today. Yeah. I mean, collective action for collective benefits. Um, that's a, that's a great solution to a problem that doesn't have a profit-based, um, uh, you know, profit-based answer. So um, again, public power and, and that type of community collaboration. Um, those are things that have been beneficial to people in our state and in other states for a long time. I think that's so important. The idea that like, we're all in this together because I know yes. politicians in the state, specifically the Republican Party, they like to pretend that it's rural versus urban. And it, it's really not. Mm -hmm. it, we're all we're all the state. Yes. We got to figure this stuff out together. And when you do things like take away public choices or you don't have enough public choices, it will be the rural communities that are shortchanged like everyone will get shortchanged a little but the rural communities will get shortchanged a lot because it is they don't have the population to be profitable for anything they're not profitable and so if you want private companies to run things for you you're not profitable rural Nebraska you're just not um so it, like you're not profitable for private schools so don't defund the public schools you need them that's that's how this works. So I think that's just always every single issue. If you look to see like, oh, why are they privatizing it? Well, just know a lot of people are going to be left behind. Mm -hmm. The poor and the rural are always going to be left behind because they're not profitable. They're just it not. makes me so angry that that whole push for the, <laughs> the way some of the politicians push this rural urban divide myth because I don't want to live in a small town, Nebraska. I don't, but I have nothing against it. In fact, like, I'm really happy that it's there. I want to go visit it. I want to camp out by your lake. I do. I want to bring my dollars and rent your cabins and buy overpriced tackle and <laughs> whatever. Visit your little restaurants. I want to do all of that. Um, and I love that there are people out there who are stewards of this land and who, you know, like stopping Keystone Pipeline and protecting the sand hills um, in other ways. Um, I don't think the divide exists so much as they think. <laughs> it's a political ploy. I mean, to- Yeah, to divide us. And to take power away from the people. And I think that um, public power and our public power districts, specifically in Nebraska, um, provide a good answer there because there are three roles for the directors at our public power districts. One, we are a director of the operations within the utility. Two, we are a regulator in setting rates for the utility. But three, there's another responsibility, and that is to be an advocate for the customers that you specifically represent. And those are also the voters who elected you to represent them at the board at that utility. And that third role in uh, at OPPD, there are a couple districts that are dramatically more uh, rural than, than the other districts. Um, and so two of the board members have a dramatically different physical makeup of their uh, of their portion of the service territory. Northeast Omaha is quite dense, um, but uh, to the south and to the west, there are other districts and it's the responsibility of those directors to represent the interests of their constituents and they do an excellent job. And there are seldom other uh, organizations that have such a good direct connection between the people 
and the decision makers um, who will make sure that the rules aren't left out and that they don't get, uh, you know, they're short, the short, um, short changed on, cha on updates when we make big dramatic decisions that rural communities are not left out and that they do still get the benefits um, that, uh, that everyone else gets. So I, I think that public power really is, uh, is a good answer to that specific problem that you're talking about, that uh, you know, somewhat made up urban rural divide where it's seen as one or the other. Uh, nope, the public power districts have directors specifically to represent those people. And we all meet and vote on issues and make sure that we hear uh, from the representatives for those districts to, to avoid the exact thing that you're talking about. April, I know you have a question you like to ask every guest. Yeah, Eric, have you been reading anything that you might uh, share with our listeners? She is yeah. a librarian, so I really hope you've been reading. <laughs> Don't come after you. It's terrible. It's Don't fail me. <laughs> well, we'll find out uh, if this lives up to your standards. I do mostly listening reading, um, audiobooks and podcasts. That absolutely lives up to standards. Go on. Cool, cool. Uh, <laughs> glad to hear it. Um, I just finished uh, a book by Leah Stokes. Um, called short circuiting policy. It is specifically about uh, utilities in um, across the country and how private interests um, were able to get the better of what people wanted from their electric utilities, um, kind of over the last 20 years or so. So that would be in the nonfiction area, um, very work related for me, and I really enjoyed it. Um, but secondly, um, I'm just finishing up uh, Black Leopard, Red Wolf, which is um, kind of an African uh, fantasy sci-fi book by Marlon James. Um, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's excellent. Uh, I really enjoy it. Um, it's a, a lot of the fantasy literature and uh, media that we have in the United States is very uh, white centered. And this mm -hmm. is from a totally different perspective and uh, introduced a whole bunch of uh, new and interesting things that I personally had not encountered before. So um, it's very long. Uh, it's taken me a very long time to get through it, but, uh, but I've really enjoyed that. And, uh, and even though it's not reading on the page, um, I hope that, uh, that that's, uh, that's something that lives up to the standards of the librarian. Uh, yeah, you know I'm a children's librarian, right? <laughs> well, to be, to be clear, I do not recommend that book for children. I just no, want to I, that I, right I didn't now. figure that. Cool. that I'm is not saying a, I'm not a snob. I just uh, not like a children's book. Not reading. a children's book. Not a children's <laughs> book. <laughs> so... The final question that we like to ask everyone when they come is you're doing really incredible work. And if there are people out in the world who would like to emulate you, who would like to get involved in the work and define work however you want, what would you say to them? What are the first steps to getting involved in the work? So I've been involved in environmental organizations and actions and causes for um, 12 years or more. And I decided to run for the board at OPPD because I had already been attempting to make change in our community through a number of different things in my personal life, by putting solar panels on my own home, by working with uh, community-based nonprofits. And so the next logical step for me to have more impact uh, and help push policy forward in our community was to look for the elected office that had the most ability to, to help improve, uh, improve uh, policy in that area. And so, uh, you know, what is it that you're most passionate about? What have you been doing already? Where do you spend your free time? And uh, if you look around, there are a number of different public agencies who have a specific mission to work in that area. And you don't have to be the elected official yourself. The good thing is that um, specifically not at the federal level or maybe not even at the state level, but as you get down to more local public agencies, um, your directors at your public utility or your um, state board of education representatives, they are very accessible people. And if you have some ideas about how you'd like to see policy improved moving forward, you can get in touch with them and they will, they will listen to you or they should listen to you and help determine whether or not your ideas can help uh, move policy forward. And then if you try to contact them and that doesn't work, if they don't respond, if they don't listen, if you don't see policy change that you think is in the right direction, uh, then think about whether or not that might be a position that, uh, that you, would you would see yourself serving in in the future. And if so, there are a lot of great resources for first time candidates to run for offices uh, all across the state and, and become a part of the policymaking solutions to improve people's lives in Nebraska. Awesome. 
Well, thank you so much for coming. This has been informative. Stephanie, do you have any final words? I appreciate you being here, Eric. And thanks for giving us a little insight on um, how we get our electricity here in Nebraska. Great. Well, I was glad to be here. I'm glad to be working at OPPD on improving policy um, that, uh, that improves lives in the community. And it, uh, it's really rewarding to be working on clean energy and local power here in Omaha and in the state of Nebraska. You've been listening to Seeing Red Nebraska, Politics from the Left. Seeing Red is a group blog edited by citizen volunteers and entirely devoted to Nebraska politics. You can support us on Patreon with a $5, $10, or $20 a month donation. Be sure to check us out at seeingrednebraska.com and on Facebook and Instagram. You can also follow us on Twitter at seeingredne or contact us via email at seeingredne at protonmail.com.